Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, the book, frankly, we did win this election, went on sale yesterday, although it's probably received more pre-publication buzz than almost any of the books that are out there right now. And we're very fortunate to have the author, uh, Michael Bender, who's a senior White House reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, thanks for joining us, Michael. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Charlie. I'm really excited to be here. Now, the, the subhead of this is the inside story of how Trump lost, and we have to get to this, but you have one of the more interesting blurbs on the book that I had to ask you about. Mm-hmm. You have a blurb from Donald Trump, 45th president of the United States, who says, <laughs> who says of you, Michael, he's one of the tough ones, but such beautiful hair. So what's, yeah, what's the, that? Well, that is um, really the kind of heart of the relationship between Donald Trump and I. Um, he, you know, he, he appreciates, I work for the Wall Street Journal, he appreciates the journal, and, uh, it, you know, we, I've interviewed him in Trump Tower and Air Force One and in the Oval Office. But what, um, what, what really matters to him is, is my hair. Um, and at one point he actually, um, he was, you remember when Sean Spicer had, had, was having some trouble and they were trying to replace him. Um, and we were talking to him on Air Force, the president on Air Force One. And he said, well, I can have anyone I want work in that job. You know, I have the pick of the litter. And I, uh, yeah, I, my eyebrows kind of furled and Trump can pick up on, you know, I mean, he reads a room better than anyone. Right. And he swirled around to me and said, what, you, you disagree? He says, you would take that job. I said, no, Mr. President, I, I, I would not take no. that job. And he looked at me and said, well, with that hair, you, you need to be the press secretary. <laughs> and so it's come up in, in, in several instances. Um, and then, uh, you know, we can talk about it a little bit more if you want to, but 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 he had, he's attacked my book. He singled out this book um, specifically uh, several times now, and um, you know, I I, I kind of just count my blessings that he's not disparaging my hair because then I know we know something's really wrong. Um, so yeah, that that would be the end of a beautiful relationship. So I did I notice that you're, you're the you have six younger sisters. Yes, that's right. I am. So, uh, does does that uh-huh. help you growing up in a family like that? Does that help you cover the White House? I mean, is, is that a, you you have experience managing <laughs> chaos or or surviving it? I'm, I'm just wondering. It just that seemed like an unusual little detail. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it's a, a, a big family for sure. Um, uh, I think it's helped me in so many different aspects of my life, honestly. Um, and, and yeah, you, you you sort of figure out how to. Uh, how to make your voice heard, when to, um, you know, kind of what battles to pick, what, what not, um, you know, how to, and, and, um, uh, get and along with different others. dynamics. Exactly. That's exactly right. How to operate within a group, um, and, uh, and keep everybody happy. So, you know, it, I, yes, definitely covering the Trump White House was more, more when, because I had to babysit a lot of my sisters. I was the oldest of, uh, of seven. I see. So, so that, 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 that particularly, correct. Yeah. See, I'm I'm in awe of that being an only child myself. And 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 by the way, it was only like, like ten minutes ago that I realized that you're married to Ashley Parker, who's the you know White House bureau chief for the Washington Post. So you, you guys don't have any shortage of things to talk about, do you? Uh, no, that's that that's right. Um, in fact, that's how most people know me as Ashley Parker's husband, um, which is which is great. I mean, she's she's wonderful. She's the best. She's. Uh, She's uh, yeah, we, she, we talk we can talk about all the stuff in, in, in politics in Washington. She's, um, you know, much better reporter and writer than me. She's my best editor, um, you know, my best advisor, my best friend. I'm very, very lucky. 
Well, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I saw it on on her Twitter feed. She had uh, she had your very young children posing with copies of your book, but I didn't realize <laughs> it was your children. I thought, hey, this is really nice for you know the Washington Post reporter to be really promoting <laughs> a book by a, a Wall Street. I mean, what a, what a nice person Ashley Parker is, which, which of course she is. So let, uh, let's Western optimism is coming out there, Charlie. So let's, yes, we are Midwesterners. So <laughs> let's talk about how these books come together because there's a, there's a number of them that, that are mm-hmm. out and, and, and they're all incredibly sourced. If, you know, part of the fascination of reading these stories is to realize that you are in the room because people in the room decided to share this with you. And you have an interesting note right near the beginning of the book where you talk mm-hmm. about who talked to you, who was willing to talk to you, and that that, that you understand that many of them uh, give interviews to authors because they're being protective, because they know that they have to tell the story first, their version, to protect themselves against stories that other people might tell. I mean, that's part of the dynamic of this, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are... Um uh, it, it's interesting. A lot of people, a lot of colleagues um, in this business think it's it's in one sense easy to cover uh, an administration like Trump because there are so many people um, willing to talk and so many out- ways into the administration. But in a lot of ways, it makes it harder because there is no or I should say just as hard as covering a, a, a more traditional administration because there is no sort of single voice right there. Usually in a uh, an Obama administration or a George W. Bush administration. If they had a meeting, um, there usually aren't a dozen different versions of that meeting from people coming out of it. But the, so the only re- real way to get to the truth, um, you can have a source. You can talk to you know is is um, is talking to every person you can. Um, and you, you brought up Ashley and and her good reporting. She she's kind of trademarked uh, these lines in her stories about you know the dozens of people that they talk to administration mm-hmm. officials, Republicans, Trump friends, and and that's. The, that's the only way to um, to even begin feel to begin feeling comfortable um, with what actually happened inside the room, uh, whether it's the Trump campaign, um, the you know inside the or, or inside the Oval Office, um, or you know Marlago or Bedminster. So the, the, you set out to write this book um, about the, the the campaign, which turned out to be very, very different than mm-hmm. what anyone expected, including you. And and that whole year, and I, I guess you know, part of the delight of reading the book is you, you, we, we know what happened, but yeah. just to sit back and realize all the things that happened in one year, how Donald Trump became the first incumbent in three decades to lose reelection and the only one whose defeat culminated in a violent insurrection, as you write. One thing that strikes me um, about the book is that Donald Trump, and you tell me whether I'm right about this, that, mm-hmm. that Donald Trump doesn't believe, one of the reasons why he believes the big lie or pushes the big lies is that in, he doesn't believe, uh, he has a hard time believing that he lost the election because he couldn't believe that he could lose to Joe Biden. He yeah. just could not, and this comes up again and again, including, you know, his comments, you have comments uh, that, that he made about Joe Biden's bad facelift. I mean, he was mm-hmm. obsessed with the fact that I cannot lose to this guy, wasn't he? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, it's a it's a it's a good question and one I struggled with during covering the administration and writing the book. I mean, I don't have to to tell you. I mean, he was impeached. Um, be clear here the the first time um, because he was going after Joe Biden, right? I mean, it was it was a, a pursuit of Joe Biden and Hunter Biden that that trying to damage him politically. Uh, that led to this. That led to his first impeachment, you know, uh, in the first place. So it, it, it's hard for me to understand how he gets to a place just a few months later, um, where he's, you know, dismissing Joe Biden 
as a quote unquote mental retard in the Oval Office. I mean, he interrupted a policy meeting in the Oval Office um, for a total non sequitur about that he couldn't believe he could be losing to, to a mental retard in the polls like that. Um, I, I, I don't know how much it was about Joe Biden. I don't know if there's anyone in the Democratic field he would have felt like, you know, he deserved to lose to. Um, so I, I think this was was a way of him ultimately talking himself into the place we got by January 6th, which, you know, which, which, which is what really he'd been telling the country for five years, right? That he, mm-hmm. that, that Trump was never wrong. No other per- politicians were be, to be believed. Uh, the courts were not right. Uh, he would always be acquitted and, you know, and he would never fade away. So let's stick with this because as, as you, as you remind us, he was, it, it seems so long ago, doesn't it? That first impeachment about mm-hmm. the, the attempt to get the Ukraine, the Ukrainian government to investigate, uh, Biden and particularly Hunter Biden. You have a very interesting, um, chapter in, in the book. I mean, a, a passage in the book where you talk about your own role, um, later mm-hmm. on when the, the Trump folks were really trying to push this Hunter Biden story. I mean, they really did think that this was still after everything was kind of their magic bullet. And they were really, really hoping that reporters, including you would break this. So tell me a little, just tell us a little bit about that story, because that, that really was a, a very, very interesting little, uh, moment in this campaign. I, I appreciate that. I think that's one of the, definitely one of the, the scenes and chapters that, I mean, you're not going to find that in any of these other Trump books. And, um, uh, and I do think this book actually is, is the only one to date that, that looks at Trump through his campaign, through his administration. And I spent a lot of time with his supporters. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, if the book, the kind of, um, bookends of this are that that goes from impeachment to impeachment. Um, and the through line through one, one of the through lines through this whole thing is, is, is Hunter Biden. Um, so I, it's, uh, it's in the last weeks of the race, really, and, you know, I've been covering Trump for five years. I know a lot of the people who have, you know, uh, uh, most of the people in Trump world uh, have somewhat of relationships uh, w- with just about all of them. Um, and, you know, a, a, a certain amount of trust between the, you know, between us, uh, uh, some professional professional relationships. Right. Mm-hmm. And they were beside themselves and, and partly correctly here that the Hunter Biden stuff story had been completely ignored. Uh, by anything other than the right wing media, um, and and their frustration was that as long as the far right media continued to uh, cover this Hunter Biden issue, what he was doing um, overseas, his international business dealings, whether or, whether or not his father was involved, how much he was trading on the family name, which are which are all fair questions, right, for any politician uh, for of any party, but they couldn't get any coverage because in part. Um, the, 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 the right wing media had distorted it so badly that it was, it was viewed as a, basically a conspiracy by everybody else. Yes. So what they were trying to do is bring it to the Wall Street Journal, bring it to me and say, hey, you know, we think we have a story here. And, and what they brought to me was a man by the name of Tony Bobolinsky. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I met with him and his attorneys for several hours. Um, they walked me through all of his text messages. I mean, he, as a journal reporter, um, as a Wall Street Journal reporter, it was a fascinating, uh, rare I thought under the hood look at um, at, at, at international uh, deal making at really an embryonic level, uh, and w- with uh, you know ambitious ambitious uh, young businessmen from from the t- world's two biggest superpowers, uh, talking about the U.S. and China, and and how they're both trying to woo each other and uh, and get a deal and kind of what you could see signs of who wanted what and um, 
you know, Joe Biden's name does come up here and there, but there was there we ended I ended those meetings hours long saying hey, saying just what I told you. There is some there is a good story here. It's about Hunter Biden. Everything you've showed me about Joe Biden is not the smoking gun you think it is. It's, it's worth questions, sure, but you know we're not going to do a story based on this that Joe Biden has done something improper because it just doesn't show it. Um, and to my surprise, they said, sure, like, no, you do it. We, I mean, they wanted anything, mm. anything. The They wanted the imprimatur of the Wall Street Journal's rigorous editing process to say at least there's something here uh, that is worth talking about. And, you know, Hunter Biden, he, ha- you know, uh, I'm going to use this phrase a little loosely here, but he has traded on the family name for decades, yeah. you know, yeah. um, and, uh, you know, it is it is worth looking at. And again, there was a it was like a John Grisham style details here um uh, of this um back and forth with, with with him and some some chinese officials but um you know what happened is what happens always in trump world is that the left hand's not talking to the right hand and um it, it all falls apart when trump blurts out on a call with reporters that the wall street journal is working on this story um and then it, it forced our hand and we had ended up did having end up having to write the story that these guys did not want which was that Based on this evidence, Joe Biden didn't have any involvement. So this is interesting that the most, you know, perhaps the most consequential story that you wrote was a story about basically the story that you didn't write. The story that they wanted you to write that you said wasn't a story. I, I, I put that in the most convoluted possible way. But I think you understand what I'm saying is that mm-hmm. m- most reporters think that, you know, um, the most important thing I will do is when I break this big scandal. And your most important story was the one that said, yeah, there's not a big scandal. Here. Yeah, I mean, uh, th- that's not necessarily the story I wanted to do not because for any political right. reason, but sure. I like there, you know, th- th- that something didn't happen is not really news, you know, usually. Um, right. and, um, and, 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 and yeah, there was, uh, uh, there, there, there was something here. Interesting. I thought there was, um, you know, maybe I mentioned Midwestern optimism. Maybe it was my own Midwestern optimism that thought this was actually gonna, uh, could actually happen. And I should have been probably smart enough to, to realize right then that this was all going to blow up in, uh, in all of our faces within just a matter of days. Um, because what happened, as you remember, the, the New York Post basically posted the, the contents of the quote-unquote Hunter Biden laptop. Right. right? As, Which badly, included, as badly as possible. <laughs> yeah. So I remember I got a, I, that, that night I got a call from Steve Bannon, who Bannon was, was, was on that operation with Giuliani. And Bannon was just, uh, uh, you know, urgent call from Steve. He says, you know, what's this about you're working on a story? I've been told you're You've got a team of two dozen Wall Street Journal reporters, and you're going to post a front page story in two days. And that's when I was just like, "Oh shit!" Right? Like, <laughs> you know, I I, I, could, I knew that someone was overinflating what I was doing in order to try to halt the Bannon and Giuliani operation. And it was right then where I knew that, uh, you know, I'd gotten I, I'd gotten myself into trouble, and some of our uh, our good uh, our good business reporters and uh, and and China reporters who I who I dragged into this. And, uh, you know, I, I make a special acknowledgement in the book or, or, or really an apology at the in the acknowledgements for for, uh, you know, embroiling those guys. See, this raises the question, you know, then I remember that new, the, the of course, the, the New York Post story was written by somebody who uh, you know, didn't really actually write the story. They, they when they like slapped somebody's byline on and it was it was uh, it, it sort of became mm-hmm. an example of, of bad journalism, which raises the question. If, in fact, you did have, if the right-wing media had not toxified this story, 
if they had taken that laptop story seriously, if it had, if it had been vetted um, more carefully, uh, more mm-hmm. honestly, uh, more professionally, you know, m- might there have might it have been a bigger story? Might might it have raised other questions that that got kind of got sloughed over during the campaign? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, very possibly, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons we do journalists do stories a lot of times is is there is there's a decent story here and you put, or maybe not the reason you do stories, but often what happens, right? You do a sort of a, a, an interesting story that, you know, a string gets pulled, someone sees it, gives you another piece of information and that kind of stuff builds on each other. I mean, uh, it's, it's uh, two things are striking to me here. One is that, again, this is, this is one of the strings through Trump's last, you know, 20 months in office is this issue. And, and, and the story I'm telling you now happened in the final weeks mm-hmm. of the race. Um, I mean, they had a, they had a year plus to try to sort this out. And, um, you know, I mean, how many months did we talk about whether Hunter Biden was going to go on the stand in, in, in the Senate for that impeachment trial? I mean, there's just so much uh, time wasted that they will never get back. And, you know, when you talk about vetting the story, the other thing that struck me, I mean, I've been in the business for 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 two dozen years. Uh, uh, my first newspaper, my first job was a small community paper in Grand Junction, Colorado, you know, I've worked in Ohio and in Florida before I came to DC. Um, you know, the industry has changed so much in those 20 years. And that, and that's what, um, I realized there too, because the journals always had a, a reputation for this kind of rigorous, uh, editing and reporting and kind of, you know, just the facts, ma'am type of, uh, of, uh, of reports in our news pages. But if you want to get a story vetted, if you want that kind of, um, you know, attention and focus and, and, and rigor, given to a story, if you want something that, 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 you know, readers will look at on both sides of the aisle and say, okay, there might be something here. Where else do you take it? Um, I, I, you know, the fact that, that the laptop landed in the New York post, I mean, the New York post has always been, you know, had, had its own special brand, but I don't think it, you would have, the, you know, that laptop would have just run in the, the post two decades ago. Right. I mean, I, I, I no. um, so it was no, a little th- troubling as a, as a as a newspaper reporter and a journalist to, to, to one, and it di- and didn't work out as a strategy. So let's talk about the probably one of the more dramatic elements yeah. of your book that got a lot of attention when it was excerpted. Uh, the whole role of General Milley in yeah. pushing back, um, and he's a major character in in this book. And you and you really realize the difficult situation that uh, the, the general had, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, but the scene where and people might be familiar with it because it was excerpted. Well, they're sitting in the Oval Office and they're they're talking about the idea of invoking the Insurrection Act, bringing in troops. Um, weirdly enough, Mike Pence floated this idea, and and you had Stephen Miller, of course, there the you know the the, the anti-immigration humunculus, you know, talking about the need to you know send in troops, and and General Milley turning around and saying, "Shut the fuck up, Stephen." <laughs> so, so 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 because that really was a central part of the year is mm-hmm. this? I mean, I, I mean, of the whole story, this push and pull between the military, the Department of Defense. And the the constant obsession that Trump world had with the the role of the military, not just in putting down, yeah. not just in putting down the riots, but then later in, could they play a role in overturning the election? Yeah, I, th- this is one of the themes of the book here, and 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 uh, I think a, a powerful example of how the people around Trump. Um, you know, they, it wasn't that they were concerned about chaos. I mean, what revealed itself in, in my interviews with, uh, uh, you know, uh, senior administration officials and campaign officials was that um, 
you, they were worried that, 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 that Trump was so desperate to hold on to office that he'd become violent and reckless and, and, and unhinged. Um, and it, and it fell to the top general in the world's most powerful military to act as a guardrail to prevent some truly dangerous situations, which is the one you brought up, which is the one you brought up here. And, you know, so much was reported about this at the time, but what we didn't really know or hear from, uh, was, uh, was Millie's role back then. And the reporting in this book shows, I think, uh, 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 instance after instance of, 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 of Millie, um, really being the one who's willing to say no to Trump in a, in, in a clear and precise way. Um, in, in, you know, that, that almost no one else around Trump does. Yeah. Including, um, the, although the, the secretary of defense, uh, Mark Esper, um, mm-hmm. who was known as Jesper, um, really did, did find his voice, uh, after the whole Lafayette square clearing, which, uh, which is kind of interesting is that for a lot of these guys, there was a line. We always wondered, was there a line? You know, what would they, what would they do if they crossed it? And, um, I have to admit that I was surprised at the time that Mark Esper pushed back. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad you brought up Esper because you're right. Esper was one; he was unequivocal about um, the uh, you know, about bringing military troops into um, into U.S. cities. Uh, you know, under Esper was one of the the men in the room, men and women in the room who understood the clear difference between you know National Guardsmen who are trained as quasi law enforcement to handle protests, and the you know young men and women of the 81st Airborne who are trained to kill and take land. Right. And, you know, the, the, the sort of different dynamics that those two present. But but the, the problem with Esper was that he to, was that Trump had kind of turned on Esper by then and uh, was very dismissive of him, um, uh, you know, in that's in that, in that very special Trump way. But but Milley, by in June of 2020, has a, has a rapport with Trump where he can tell him no. And Trump still, you know, and Trump still respects him. I mean, several aides told me that. Um, that Milley had a good way of, uh, of interacting with Trump and that he could tell him no directly and clearly. But then, you know, uh, a few minutes later, Trump is, uh, has something on his mind says, well, give me Milley. What does Milley think about this? Find me Milley. Um, and it's, it's not really until Milley has to apologize for being tricked into the mm-hmm. photo op at St. John's where, where things start to fray. And um, it's a, it's, it's another scene in the book here where, 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 where Trump uh, confronts Millie in front of uh, in front of other people and says, "You know, why did you apologize? I, I don't understand that. You look weak." And Millie looks at Trump and says, "I didn't expect you would understand." <laughs> yeah, and well, then that's really yeah. you know that that's where thing that that's where they're sort of uh, their their relationship starts to fray for. For good. Well, also, also, you you make it very clear though that he was a that he that he's a tough guy that that he is he, he's not a shrinking flower. He wasn't like a lot of the other aides who'd be sitting around who'd be cowed by the president. That uh, that his strength was his his willingness, uh, you know, to to push back, to bark back, and um, we were fortunate that he was was there. One of the really valuable things that I found from your book, and by the way, the book again is frankly, we did win this election. The inside story of how Trump lost. Is you spent a lot of time with the rally goers, the mm-hmm. Trump super, super fans. Mm-hmm. And this is something that a lot of us have a hard time understanding who these people are, what yeah. motivates them. And you found some people who were, I mean, wow, passionate. I mean, they, and you, and you, and you sort of embedded with yeah. some of these folks and followed them all the way to the bitter end. 
Yeah. So, so who are these people? Well, this is really the human angle of the book. I mean, is is um, uh, really very quickly the, the way this started was you, you remember Trump kicked off quote unquote his uh, his campaign back in uh, uh, June of 2019, and he 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 brought hundreds of reporters down there. This was the big launch of the the reelection. And it was the same exact rally that I had sat through dozens and dozens of times before. And I was pissed. Right? We went all the way down there. There was nothing new. The sound system was a little louder, right? The stage was a little bit bigger, but it was, I mean, there were there were locker up chants, build the wall chants, right? And there was no second term, nothing, no new message. Just playing the hits. Yeah, I was like, I got yeah. duped here. But then I sat back, and, you know, it's a 20,000 seat arena. And every per, every seat was filled with people who'd been waiting hours, if not days, uh, they were they were all participating vigorously in the chants. They knew this was the show they were going to get, and that's what they wanted to see. And, I, and it occurred to me that why what is it about them or about this president that 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 made them want to watch this rerun over and over again? So so I, I spent the next couple of years trying to understand them. You know, instead of walking up and getting a, a quick quote of you know that they uh, that, that that AOC was a Muslim or some other sort of shocking. Um, you know, wild quote. I, I wanted to find out who these people were as 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 people, and and what I found was um, that the, that the people who traveled around that, that their lives had become bigger with Trump and richer mm-hmm. with Trump. And, and stay with me here, but you know, these are folks who, if you have time to go to fifty rallies for Trump, um, you know, you, you maybe you didn't have a family, or you're estranged from your family. Um, or you're recently retired and looking for some something to, to, to fill. I mean, these are and that's who these folks were. And they found that community. Um, they stayed at each other's houses, uh, you know, uh, on the drive from Connecticut to Cincinnati, um, you know, staying at Becky's uh, farm in, uh, in northeast Ohio to split up the trip. Uh, you know, I, I met a couple uh, who had met on the trail and, you know, married um, and since divorced. But, um, you know, it gave them. It, it, it gave them a, a sense of purpose. And, and for Trump, it was um, he said things in a way that empowered them a lot of ways. Yeah. One, one, one woman I follow quite a bit is Sandra Kaczynski, who tells me that, mm-hmm. you know, five years ago, she would have paid her Obamacare uh, fine uh, and, uh, and moved on and griped about it. But like Trump had told her, you know, that she could that she didn't have to pay the fine. And so she didn't. Uh, and you know, in her words, nothing happened. And you know, she when felt her, free and powerful. Yeah, and that, I, and, and, I, I was struck and, by mm-hmm. that. Yeah, and even and just be, and, more, and beyond politics, she's a she's a Walmart war- worker in a patio and garden department, and you know, now tells her boss like what her schedule is instead of the other way around, and speaks up for herself. Um, huh. And there, there, there's a lot of you know, uh, uh, um, you know, things that are hard to understand. But there's there there's a lot of I think endearing. I mean, the, the human aspects of, of this that, um, you know, at the end is, is frankly just, is just heartbreaking um, the well, way that they're, they're really misled at the end. Yeah, well, let's go to that because mm-hmm. so what, what did she think that J- January 6th was all about? What did she think was going to happen on January 6th? I mean, by the end of 2020, Sandra, um, Sandra's traveled more than she ever has in her whole life. And yes, in 2020, the, the year of the pandemic, when we were all locked down, she was earning frequent flyer miles, right? Um, <laughs> uh, her friend Ben Hirschman, had, uh, front of one of these rally goers, had died of COVID. Uh, Randall, um, another uh, another member of this community, uh, overweight uh, smoker in his sixties, knew the risks, acutely knew the risks, 
And when he, he became so sick, but he refused to go to the hospital because he didn't want to add to Trump's numbers, not just the, you know, not just the positive numbers, but the number of people tested. He was, he was putting his own health on the line. Um, and Sandra, uh, she gets to January 6th. She's, she, she's basically turned off Fox news. It had been the background music in her, in her daily routine. But when Fox called the election and, you know, in her eyes turned against Trump, uh, she had become, um, uh, you know, her, her world became smaller again, basically Charlie. And, and, uh, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a kind of vortex of conservative news where, um, where again, like Trump's kind of gaslighting had was a reality and that Trump was never going to be wrong. And he had obviously won. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing she told me, she, she knew that Trump had won and that it was a fraud because Corey Lewandowski had told her so. She had yeah. run into Corey in the summer of 2020 at the Republican uh, National Convention, uh, again, during the pandemic, where there was no public event. She crashed an event uh, um, at the Trump Hotel, you know, cornered Corey. They were talking and Corey told her, according to her, that the only way Trump was going to lose in November is if there's massive election fraud. Mm-hmm. And Trump and Corey, you know, in these folks eyes is a is sort of a prophet of, uh, you know, an Old Testament style prophet in Trump world. And um, and it was all playing out exactly how they'd been, you know, had been foretold. Well, you, you, you tell the story of of January 6th mm-hmm. when they are there and then they they hear the word that Mike Pence is not going to pull that bizarre thing of not counting the, the election. And is, is it Sandra? I, I don't have it right in front of me, but was, yeah. it, was her who said so? They, I mean, the the you describe how the, the the surge, the energy in the the crowd yeah. intensified as they began looking for Mike Pence. And if they had found Mike Pence, uh, she says, uh, they would have killed him. That's right. Um, I mean, that 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 that's a hell of a quote. Oh yeah, I, exactly. It's chilling. I mean, she it is. Um, she. Uh, this is that, that's a very good detail of, to 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 to, uh, to understand what I was trying to say before, which was that of her of, of her news inputs, right, of, of where she's getting her information. Um, a lot of us knew what Pence was going to do. Um, he had never he had not put out a statement, but there was a lot of reporting um, in main in the mainstream press that Pence was telling Trump that this was unconstitutional. Um, but he hadn't put out a statement. It hadn't come out of his mouth. And, uh, and the VP had, is waiting to, um, you know, show uh, as a sign of respect, waiting for Trump to finish the speech before they put it out. Well, not until Pence's statement goes out, do a lot of the people at the rally realize what's happening, that, that, that Pence, you know, has in, in their minds has now suddenly turned, right? Because Trump had been telling them for the last several weeks that Pence was going to do this, you know, uh, or, or was, was probably going to do this. And, or there was a real possibility that he would. Um, I'll be honest. I'll be honest with you. I did not understand until afterwards that people really believe this was a real possibility. Th- this this was this is a detail. I mean, I, we've realized it since, and your book makes it very very clear. But when when I mean, remember when you first heard the idea, the the notion that the vice president could simply not count the electoral votes? You rolled your eyes, right? Yeah. I mean, and yet what's very clear is that. These people believe this. They had been told that this was a real possibility and that this was going to happen, which explains the shock when it didn't. Yeah. And they were and taking it very literally and very seriously um, along the way. And, and they they saw things that a lot of the rest of us didn't. I mean, the people who were around Trump for five. I mean, Trump's been telling us this for five years, that that the only way he could lose 
was an elect, election fraud. I mean, the book actually goes back quite a bit and, and, and to show how he has done this uh, for decades, right? I mean, um, you know, when his uh, when, when The Apprentice was losing, was, was coming in second or third place or, or not winning uh, Emmys, he he claimed voter fraud. Right. Um, so, um, you know, th- th- there was a real lack of imagination, especially around Trump. And so many people told me that he just needs his, he just needs some space. Uh, he'll get yeah. there himself. Uh, you know, he seems okay. The fact that he wasn't screaming and, and frothing at the mouth somehow with to, you know, the Mike Pence's of the world, the Ronald McDonald's of the world, the Jerry Christians of the world suggested that he was going to somehow get to yes on this, even though he'd been promising us otherwise, all along and, and, and giving him space really, it only created an opening for Giuliani, Sidney Powell's and, 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 and those characters, right. And, and Mike, Mike Pompeo's words, uh, the crazies had taken over. So you, you quote this woman as saying that if we had found Mike Pence, we would yeah, have killed yeah. him. And she yeah. doesn't mean that metaphorically or symbolically. I mean, she's talking about how angry people were. It was also interesting that, that you know, hours and hours and hours later, when uh, Trump put out the video where he told people to, to, to leave, you know, you're wonderful people, I love you. She, she found that to be, she was disappointed in that. Yeah, that, 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 that was a letdown for her. And I think that reading this is also, you know, again, uh, underlies why Trump refuses to acknowledge or concede, because he understands that his base, people like these, these super fans, would feel tremendously betrayed and let down. And so does she feel let down? What, you, what does she think is going to happen now? Well, it's a good question. Um, the... Uh, even where, so I, I do want to be clear that, that Saunders did not st- storm the Capitol. She was in the in the sort of parade toward the Capitol. She was outside the rest of the time. I, you know, uh, uh, I, so I, I, you know, that, I think that is okay. a, a fair line yeah. of distinction. I just kind of want to make, um, and and yeah, and, and Trump's lack of nuance at any on any issue for anything um, had become um, so ingrained with these with with the base that 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 was confusing. She she. Uh, you know, she was in Cleveland for his rally in, in June. She's been down to Florida. She, uh, you know, Trump has started holding fundraisers for um, different uh, organizations at Mar-a-Lago. She's uh, on those email lists and she goes and, you know, pays the money to go to the fundraiser for the chance to see Trump. And this is uh, this is wow. some new reporting that I, after the book, I, uh, I haven't talked about anywhere, but one of these fundraisers, she, she kind of stuck around afterward and knew that he was golfing that day and told her friend that if we, you know, if we, if we're kind of the last ones out, maybe we'll see him coming in on his golf cart. And, uh, again, she's been to, you know, 60, 70 rallies at this point in the front row all the time. Um, Mm. and, uh, and, and it works and they're at the valet stand when Trump's golf cart pulls up and he gets out and kind of walks, starts to walk into the back entrance and, you know, she just goes for it and yells out, Trump. And he turns to her, sees her, looks at her and says, do you work here? Um, <laughs> you know, so. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Draw that time. So actually, at the very end of the book, you do describe how Donald Trump lives now. You went down to Mar-a-Lago to interview him. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's kind of a surreal scene. The ex-president holding court at the country club he lives in. He's the only person who lives in the country club. And so. What what is what is his life like now? It, it 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 seems that I mean he's surrounded by adoring fans. They have dinner, you know, in a roped off area. You he invited you to dinner and everything. So what what is, how does how does Donald Trump live these days? Yeah, yeah. I caught him in an interesting 
uh, uh, time period for sure. Although, you know, with Donald Trump, maybe every, maybe any time is qualifies as an interesting time period for Donald Trump, but he was, he was just as unprepared for post-presidency life as he, as he was for the presidency itself. Uh, they, 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 he arrived in Mar-a-Lago, uh, and turned to an aide and said, well, well what am I going to do now? What am I going to do all day now? Uh, the staff that he had with him, he brought to a, a room to show where they were, you know, where they were going to work out of an office in Mar-a-Lago. Uh, there were mattresses on the floor. They had to go and, um, you know, the office depot and buy their desks and chairs. Um, and, and, and Trump was in a, in a weirdly, there was a moment there where he was in this weird reflective, uh, weird for Trump and unusual for Trump, um, you know, uh, uh, melancholy, but he's since found his routine. He, he golfs all the time, not surprisingly, sometimes 36 holes a day. Uh, when I interviewed him the first time, he had just finished playing with Ernie Els. Um, you know, he, it looked to me like he had lost a little bit of weight. Uh, his hair had returned to a color that resembled something, you know, we may, might actually be found in, in, in somewhere in, in nature. Uh, I mean, he looked, he looked good. He was very relaxed. He was in a, in, in, a, in an upright chair, but he had, was, was essentially reclined in it. I mean, he was, uh, kind of slouched in the chair, it, it relaxed. Right. And, um, uh, you know, I think he just, I, I think it's, it's, he's at a point here where he kind of always is. Is he going to run for president? I don't, you know, I don't think he knows he, but he, but he does want to be part of the conversation. And well, I think, and, and you, and you asked him about how he felt about deep platforming and it was a kind of a surprising answer, right? I mean, what is it like to be off Twitter? He doesn't seem to mind. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't, maybe this is uh is my own lack of imagination here, but I, I'm continually surprised covering uh, covering Donald Trump, and I almost fell out off the couch when he told me that he was glad to be off Twitter um, because he'd realized how much time he had, you know, what a time suck uh, scrolling through Twitter was, and um, you know how much trouble he'd get into retweeting people. Um, yeah, I, I love that, buddy. It's, it's the retweeting that gets you in trouble. <laughs> That's what kills you. It's the retweets. But don't we all know that? Well, yeah, that's exactly right. This is a sort of like the danger of Donald Trump. There's always a kernel of truth in what he's saying. You know, There's, he's not wrong on that. So do you think he's going to run? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I really don't know. I do think uh, I do think 2022. I mean, he's, he's already made what? Two dozen endorsements in, 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 in I mean, everything from the U.S. Senate to I believe the Staten Island borough president and you know how some of the, and I'm sure he's just going to make more and how those, uh, some of those races pan out will be informative to him. Uh, you know, especially where he's endorsing candidates, uh, in primaries, um, running against incumbents. Um, you know, those are not easy races to win, even when you have the endorsement of a former president. So that'll be, you know, I think that'll be informative, but what I do think, um, is that there's a lot of, Republicans have a choice in 2022 and it's going to be whether or not they want to re- try to redefine themselves post Trump. And, um, not only will that play into Trump's decision to, to a degree, but I think what this book does is lay out in a, in a, in, a, in some, in a, in a very stark way, um, that there is, um, Republicans are going into that decision with their eyes wide open. They know what they're getting, with Donald Trump at this point. I think some of them are going in with their eyes wide open and some of them are going in with their eyes very firmly um, uh, averted. Well, no, that, they, don't wanna, they, they really don't want to look too closely at all of this, right? Because then they might have to comment on it or deal with it. That, no, that's true. I mean, the, the fact is like, is, is that no one, uh, no one can say that they didn't know. And if, and if you're not right. sure, 
uh, pick up this book and see how the uh, see what the people around him, the, his closest advisors, have to say about how they were worried um, that, that that Trump was a danger to this country. Yes. And uh, as a former uh, Republican congressman, mm-hmm. Neil Love uh, says, uh, you know, when your book came out, pointed out that things were more ugly than we thought. I mean, if 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 you read this account, if you've watched the videos, you know what's going on. And it, and it is frightening. Um, the book is, frankly, we did win this election, the inside story of how Trump lost by Michael Bender. It is an outstanding read, uh, putting in context uh, everything that happened last year it was really 2020, I think, is going to be is going to go down in history as one of the most remarkable years, uh, not just in politics, but just the the intersection of everything that was happening on the streets, uh, Black Lives Matter, the pandemic. It all happened in one year. And it really hit me reading your book, uh, which is uh, just an immensely uh, compelling read. And uh, there are a number of books coming out. Uh, Some of them are excellent. Uh, Some of them, like Michael Wolf, I would strongly recommend this book by uh, Michael Bender. So you don't have to comment on this, but. It's mm-hmm. also just much better written than Michael Wolf's book. I don't know why people are reading that, that stuff either. But Charlie, um, I just appreciate that yeah. so much. I mean, I, I put so much. This is it's a story about 2020, but it's informed by my experiences from five years of covering yeah. Trump uh, uh, day in and day out. Um, and and writing this book uh, during a pandemic, uh, just um, it the pandemic upended all of our lives. Right. Uh, right. Routines changed for all of us. And and I asked the people around me uh, that I love the most to. To, to shoulder even more of my own burden while I while I wrote this, um, so the reception that it's gotten so far has just been um, so gratifying. I'm 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 I'm, I just, I'm so appreciative that you uh, took the time to read it, um, to and 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 that you liked it even more. I, I, I thank you very very much. Well, I, I not only read it, I I mean I I, I devoured <laughs> it. I I, fi- I found it impossible to put down, and also again I, I really appreciated the context uh, that you put everything in uh, this remarkable year, and this is not easy to do this. Uh, so th- this is, this is definitely, there are a lot of books out there. Uh, I strongly recommend this. Michael, thank you for being so generous with your time today. A pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again. <laughs>